Great to see you all today. And uh, this morning we're going to be in Luke for the majority of our time together, Luke chapter 7. Um, but initially, Isaiah 61. So if you've got your Bible, can you turn to Isaiah 61? We've been going through Isaiah 61 over the last few weeks. We're going to be working through the whole chapter, lifting from it a number of big themes that are addressed within the chapter. And we kicked off by showing how Jesus identified this prophecy with his own ministry. How in Luke 4, he got up and delivered a sermon in a synagogue that he read from this passage, that he got up to a certain point and he sat down and said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus saw this text as uh, like a manifesto, if you like, for his ministry, what he came to do, and he says it's fulfilled in your presence. And we as his body, as his church, are called now to follow in his example, to imitate his example. And so just as he lived out Isaiah 61, so too are we called to live out Isaiah 61 to proclaim good news, to call people to know God. And this is why we exist as a church. So it's a great challenge to us. Let me ask you this question. Whose opinion matters most to you in this world? To whom are you looking for approval and acceptance? How do you decide how accepted and approved you are? What places do you go to? We'll be familiar with the huge challenges faced by teenagers and young people when it comes to social media and how that's just so overtly a space where we can be sucked in and look for some kind of affirmation and approval in that kind of space. And I'm sure you'll all be aware of the many pieces of research done that show the direct correlation between the numbers of hours spent on social media and mental health illnesses and conditions amongst particularly young people. Where do you go to find your acceptance? Where do you find it? So the invitation to you today, the invitation to each of us, is where so many are looking out there to be approved by people in the crowd. The invitation today, we've heard it through worship, is this. Come and be hidden. Come and be hidden in Christ, in God. That is a profound thing for us to think about. That the gospel invites you to be hidden. Think about that. Hidden. Hidden deep, deep in Christ. What a wonderful place and space that is. I don't know if you saw on the news this week a woman who's spent 500 days in a cave. Did you see that? What? On her own, 500 days, and she came out. I don't think that's the kind of hiddenness the gospel speaks about. I think it's a hiddenness that we get to share in together it's a hiddenness which is deeply communal and relational, but it, it does speak of something so profoundly deep and secure and solid, to be surrounded by rock-like strength, to be held in that kind of a space. It's what we're thinking about today. 
particularly as we look at Jesus and how he deals with people like me and you. So that's what we're going to be focusing on. Let's just read the first three verses of Isaiah 61 together. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the broken-hearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. They will be called righteous trees, oaks of righteousness, planted by the Lord to glorify him. Let's pray together. And so, Father God, we thank you so much for how, through your Son, an invitation has gone out from heaven, heaven's throne that sinners might find forgiveness, that we might find our belonging and our home with God. Lord, we thank you so much that these are the days of your favor and acceptance. But Lord, we also recognize the day of vengeance is certain. And I pray, Lord, may we take these things so seriously and not casually. But I pray, Lord, above it all, please would you reveal yourself again to our hearts. Father, we just want to know Jesus more. We want to know Jesus today. We want Holy Spirit for you to reveal Jesus to us today. Because Jesus, you show us who God is and what God is like. Our creator, our rescuer, our friend, our savior, our comforter, our redeemer, the restorer of our souls and the lover of our souls, the first and the last. We want to know more and more about you, Lord Jesus. Help me as I attempt to communicate these things and help us to have ears to hear. And I pray, protect us from the evil one who wants to snatch the seed of your word and to take it away from producing a harvest in our hearts. Oh, Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today we are thinking about the Lord's favor, and we're dwelling on uh, verse 2. We are to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance. The day of our God's vengeance. Wherever the gospel is preached faithfully, we should expect to hear good news. That's what the gospel is. It's good news. There's been a victory. You need to hear about good news. But where it's faithfully preached, we have to also hear some bad news as well. So to just say there's just good news, it's just favor that there isn't a vengeance, there isn't a judgment, is to not faithfully preach the gospel. And the way the gospel was preached throughout the scriptures the way in which Jesus declared the gospel, and the way in which we're called to as well. We say we've been saved by Jesus. We've been rescued by Jesus. We are loved by Jesus. 
He has forgiven us. In order for us to make any sense of the crucifixion, the abject humiliation of the Son of God, we have to understand the judgment and the vengeance of God. And so as we go through the whole scriptures, we find this coupling, we find it everywhere. Right at the very beginning in Genesis, we find it. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you eat it, you will surely die. And what was the first lie that occurred in the garden when the evil one came and said literally, you will not surely die. So that's the first lie. You will not surely die. So it would be very convenient for us to kind of marginalize anything that sounds a little intense and a little heavy and to focus instead on just the feel-good stuff. But Jesus didn't do that. And the Bible doesn't do that. And so through the pages of Scripture, we're reminded over and over again of this reality that there is a year of favor, but there's a day of vengeance and a day of judgment. Exodus 34 The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, that's Moses, and proclaimed his name. The Lord, that's the covenant name, the promised name given to God's people. The Lord, and the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations. Forgiving iniquity, hallelujah. Rebellion and sin, praise God. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. We have here an overwhelming heralding of the Lord's favor. But we also have coupled with that the promise of punishment for the guilty but we have to notice in verse 7 maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations his punishment to the third and fourth in other words the favor and the grace and the mercy goes on and beyond every generation's sin and evil So whilst you can't escape the fact that the Bible speaks about God's judgment and God's vengeance, if you're reading the Bible accurately, you also have to go, but overwhelmingly, we're reading about God's favor. Overwhelmingly, we're reading about God's mercy. Overwhelmingly, we're reading about his love and his grace and his compassion. Overwhelmingly, we're reading about a God that's going after lost people. That's just the Bible. That's overwhelmingly the message. And so we're told it's a year of the Lord's favor. It's a day of vengeance, right? There's a year of favor. There's a day of vengeance. And Jesus comes and he says, and I've come to proclaim the year of the favor of the Lord. We are living in that year. So it's a, this is a vast time frame in comparison to the day of judgment, So in the Psalms, I think it's Psalm 30, it says, your anger, Lord, lasts for a moment, but your favor is here for a lifetime. 
So today, brothers, sisters, friends, we are invited to be recipients of God's favor. And let me urge you, go for that. Let me urge you with all my heart, don't go for vengeance when favor is what you're invited to receive today. It's why we speak the name of Jesus. It's why we love his name. It's why we declare his name. Uh, because he's the one that's inviting us to receive his favor. And that word favor can also be translated as his acceptance. This is the year of the Lord's acceptance. To be accepted by God. Just think for a moment. When I asked you, who is it you're looking to find acceptance from? Whose approval matters to you more than anyone else's? You can know with utter certainty today utter certainty today that you are accepted by your creator. You can stand before God. You might leave this building today, and I hope this hasn't happened to a single one of you. Drop down dead, find yourself before God, and he's pleased with you. He's pleased. The promises of the gospel are just so amazing. So we're going to see this lived out in a particular woman's life. Turn to Luke chapter 7 with me, please, which is where we'll spend the rest of our time together this morning. I could have chosen, in reality, almost any other passage in the Bible because we're dealing with the gospel, we're dealing with the Lord's favor, but this one really is a fantastic example of how it is some people embrace God's favor and acceptance of them and for others it's very hard to and that resonates with our experience doesn't it as well there are some people who just can't get enough of Jesus and there are others who just don't really want to go there why is that the case and this is a great example to us of how God works in people's lives so Luke chapter 7 verse 36 to 50 I'm going to read it out and then we're going to go through it together Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is. Who is touching him? She is a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. 
you gave me no kiss. But she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she's anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Such a beautiful passage. And so we're just going to look at it together and just make a number of observations. And the first to make is the fact that Jesus enters into a Pharisee's house is interesting. Because if you know the Gospels at all, you know that Jesus and the Pharisees always seem to be at war with each other. Um, Jesus reserved his strongest, harshest words for the Pharisees. But it isn't like Jesus was just dismissive of them. And it's not like Jesus had compassion only for a particular category of people. He had compassion towards all people. He's willing to sit in this man's house. He's willing to eat with him. He has accepted this invitation, knowing full well that his heart is very hostile towards him. But he's a peculiar kind of Pharisee, because most Pharisees would be very embarrassed to be seen with this radical rabbi, and yet he's willing to have him. So we have a few Pharisees like this, Nicodemus would be another who kind of in the middle of the night went to find Jesus too. And so he's reclining at the table. Now we have to understand in the context what that would have looked like. It's not the kind of traditional table that we would eat at. They would have been lying down, the feet would be away from the table, they would be propping themselves up on their elbow. That's the kind of picture that we would have. This is quite possibly quite an elaborate meal that is being put on. Verse 37, and a woman in the town who was a sinner. You have to notice these little details in the Bible. You can read this passage and you can miss some of the finer detail. Just notice the tense between what I've just read, a woman in the town who was a sinner, and then look at how Simon speaks of her in verse 39. If he knows who this is, he'd realize she is a sinner. She is. She was. She is. She was. Right? You've got to notice that detail. It would seem that this woman's heart has already been transformed by Jesus. It would seem that before she's arrived here, already she knows something of the forgiveness of God. That she had an identity. So scholars agree she was most likely a prostitute. The kind of person that respectable Pharisees and scribes would avoid. But I want us just to observe her behavior. She found out that Jesus was at the Pharisee's house. Jesus is at the Pharisee's house. Jesus is eating with Simon. Now she, being a prostitute, would know she is not welcome in the Pharisee's house. She would know that if she was to just unannounced enter into a Pharisee's house, that she would be dismissed and told to leave. You don't belong here. Bringing shame upon me and upon my household. Oh, but she's bold. She's emboldened. 
She goes because she knows Jesus is there. She goes to the house. She's heard Jesus is there. She can't wait to meet him. She can't wait to be there with him. And so she's courageous and she's bold. And it says in the Bible, boldly approach the throne of grace. That's what it looks like. She doesn't care what's going to happen to her, what's going to be said of her. It's not holding her back. The favor of God and the acceptance of God, do you know what it does? It casts fear out. Fear goes. Timidity goes. She's not afraid of man's opinion of her. She's not intimidated by what might happen as she arrives. It's one of the first things that happens. Oh, accepted by God? If God is for me, who can be against me? If he's for me, if he loves me, if I'm accepted by him, who cares what anyone else thinks? I've got his approval. And so she goes to the Pharisee's house because she's desperate to see. She's bold. And then we find she comes with her most costly gift. She comes with the perfume, her most costly gift. She was obviously prosperous in her occupation. She'd obviously managed to finance this. She comes with it. And she's weeping. She's wailing. This isn't just casual tears. This is a profoundly deep emotion that she is expressing. She finds Jesus. She goes to his feet. She washes her feet with her tears. I mean, how many tears was she crying that she could wash his feet that hadn't been washed, though they should have been washed beforehand? Jesus points out this fact in a moment. She washes his feet. She anoints his feet with perfume. She dries, she, she, she put, lets her hair loose. Again, that would be customary. That's a shameful thing to do. You don't do that in this, in this culture. She lets her hair run loose. She dries his feet with her hair. This is just uninhibited, expressive, costly worship. This is a woman who sees Jesus as worth everything. She's bold. She's humble. She's humble. She knows she's making a complete scene. She knows that people are murmuring about her, muttering about her. She knows what people think of her. And yet she's humble. Humble. And she's devoted. It's such a spectacular picture of what it looks like when you realize that Christ himself is the pearl of great price. When you realize that God, knowing God, knowing Jesus for who Jesus is, that's the prize of the gospel, having him. You see, she was a, she was a sinner, so she... She's encountered Jesus before. Jesus has been doing loads of miracles. Jesus' ministry is well underway at this point. She would have seen him interacting with people, no doubt. She knows of him. She was a sinner. And it's not like, great, I'm forgiven now. That's, I'm a Christian. 
to carry on with my life. You know, a true heart change leads not just to, I'm glad that when I die, I go to heaven. It says, I want God, and I want God now and every day for the rest of my life. So she wants Jesus, and so she goes to him. And I love how Jesus speaks to her in verse 50 where he says, your faith has saved you, go in peace. She comes boldly, she comes humbly, she comes devotedly, she leaves peacefully. Now we need to observe also the Pharisee. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, saw this incredible display of devotion and affection, he said, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Right, this guy's judging, and his judgments are just wrong all over the place. His judgment is wrong about Jesus. His judgment is wrong about God, and his judgment is wrong about the woman. His judgment's wrong about Jesus. If he were a prophet, clearly he's not a prophet. Because if he was a prophet, he knows things. He would know that this woman, he should be nowhere near her. Why should he know that? Because God doesn't want anything to do with bad people. God just wants good people. Now, you're wrong about Jesus. He's a prophet and he's more than a prophet. You're wrong about God who actually comes to break the chains of the oppressed. Comes to set sinners free. He comes to cleanse. You're wrong about God and you're wrong actually about this woman. She's not a sinner. She's a saint now. She's righteous. She's accepted. She comes in and she might look like the prostitute on the street that he's familiar with seeing. But she is pure, righteous, cleansed, forgiven. He gets it totally wrong. But look at what Jesus does. He says, Simon. Do you notice that he uses his name? Up until that point, we're just told this guy was a Pharisee. Now we're given his name. You see, Jesus is really patient with him. Despite his attitude, despite the fact that he's trying to expose Jesus, despite the fact that he's not honoring Jesus at all, Jesus is nevertheless, he's kind. He uses his name. Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, when Jesus says that, you've got to brace yourself. I've got something to say to you. Say it, teacher. And then he gives this illustration, and it's a simple one. There are two debtors. Who are the two debtors in this story? The woman and Simon the Pharisee. They're both in debt. One, admittedly, had a greater debt than the other. One 500 denarii, whole year's salary. One 50 a month's salary. But here's the thing. He says neither of them can pay it off. Neither of them can pay it off. It's an impossible debt for them to pay. Now this is going to be shocking for Simon because as far as he's concerned, he's a good guy. He's a, right, he's a righteous man. He's a Pharisee. But immediately, he's being coupled with this woman as a debtor. Now, admittedly, she has a greater debt. He seems to have lived a better life. 
does appear to be a good guy in comparison. Now, there are degrees of wickedness. There are degrees of wicked lives. You can think of people in this world and you could say, do you know what? I know I'm not as bad as them. And you can think of people in your street, neighbors and friends, and you can say, they're good people. Not Christians, but they're good people. Are they perfect? They're not perfect, but they're good people. Do they need God? Do they need Christianity? They don't give off that impression. Jesus is very aware of this dynamic. There are degrees, but listen, neither can pay off their debt. So this is really challenging all kinds of misconceptions about God and how you receive God's favor and God's approval. And it's very simple. He forgives them both. Who loves more? And so he's like, he knows what Jesus is doing. He goes, you know, I suppose the one who had the greater debt? Yes, mate. You're right. Spot on. Genius. You see what's happening here? He says, see the woman. See this woman. Look. Look deeper. Look beyond the surface. See her. Because Jesus has been seeing her this whole while. He's been seeing her with a very shallow lens. Whereas the vantage point of Jesus here is that he sees to her heart. See her. See how she's responded to me. See how she has loved me. And he, he hold, it's like holding a mirror up. She said, you know what? When I came into your house, you didn't give me water for my feet. That was just basic manners. You've got skanky feet in that day and age. They're crusted, they're unpleasant, they need to be washed. He comes in, no washing of his feet. Ah, but she washed his feet with her tears, washing them. You gave me no kiss. Again, standard custom. Some of us are huggers. Some of us like to shake a hand. I always get that wrong every morning when I come to church. I go in for a hug. <laughs> Happened to me just, just earlier. Oh, you're a handshake. I'll need to bear that in mind for next time. The custom was a, a kiss on the cheek. Jesus received no kiss on the cheek from Simon when he entered his house. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil. That's an odd one, isn't it? Again, you would have imagined dusty, windy streets. They come into a house. I imagine Jesus' hair was everywhere, right? It was a mess. The custom, some olive oil. Just, I think that's what, what this is. Anoint the head with olive oil. So Jesus is, Jesus is reclining at the table. His feet were disgusting. His hair was a mess. I imagine the Pharisee looked pristine. She does what he didn't do. She goes, she honors him, but she goes so much further than that. She loves him, she worships him, she affirms him. Those who've been forgiven much, love much. 
And until you and I can recognize the degree to which we are in God's debt, we might not find that we love God as we would like to or as we ought to. And until you see Jesus crucified and bleeding upon that cross for you, and you realize that it was your sin that held him there, until you hear your voice calling out among the scoffers, until you realize it was your sin, until you see it, until you realize your debt, That's why maybe many people fail to love God the way they should. Because I'm actually a good person and I'm doing well and my life is going well and I'm successful and I'm not like these awful people over here. I'm making my life count. Yeah, your debt is 50, sure, but you still can't pay it. And so this woman gets to go in peace. How is Simon left? You see, she's been accepted and favored. He's actually been judged by Jesus. You didn't do these things for me. I came into your home. And he's thinking, but I invited you into my home. It's like, yeah, but you didn't honor me. You don't see me for who I am yet, Simon. You don't see it. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Who do you see Jesus as? So what happens to Simon? We don't actually know. We don't know. But we are told what happens to those that don't acknowledge Jesus as God. We are told about the day of vengeance that comes. And we've spent the majority of our time this morning thinking about his favor and his acceptance and his love. But we do need to think carefully about this day of vengeance which comes. So I want to read from Revelation 21 to you. And again, just listen to the overall balance of this. This is the great, glorious coming of Jesus Christ and all that takes place. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. And will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more. Because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. Favor upon favor upon favor upon favor. 
goodness, mercy, kindness, grace. That's what's being celebrated. But the one who conquers and conquers will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But, notice the first, but the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It's interesting to me that the first list of sins there is cowardice. You think, aren't murderers worse? Cowardice comes first. Those who are afraid. You think, what, what is it that they're afraid of? What is this great fear? This seems a little strong. This seems a little unfair. I suppose we could say it's the fear of man which rules supremely in a person's heart more than the fear of God. The fear of what people might think of me, my own reputation, the the sense of pride in who I am, the kind of sin that Simon was living under. Why did Simon not fall at Jesus' feet? Why did Simon not wash his feet? Pride? Fear? Losing his own reputation? Why didn't he kiss Jesus as he entered his house? Or what people might think that I'm affirming him. Fear. I wonder if this is the sin which stops most people from coming to faith in Jesus Christ. In certain parts of the world. You know, for us maybe it's a bit of reputational damage. In certain parts of the world, to confess Christ is to genuinely risk my life and my kids' lives and my family's lives. And in places like that, people are coming to know Jesus at a remarkable rate. We have relationships with churches in India, and I'm friends with Vinu, who leads those churches. And Vinu was here just a couple of weeks ago, and was saying how we are finding our church leaders and our people are more persecuted now than they've ever been before, beaten up, thrown in prison. We're hearing of people being killed for their faith. Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who said that? Jesus. Don't talk about those things, Tim, please. I'd like to be in a church that doesn't talk about that kind of thing because it's a bit more comfortable. But how can you make any sense of the crucifixion if you don't understand why it was necessary for Jesus to hang like that upon a cross? How can you take the bread and the wine if you never talk about what it is you've been saved from? The eternal fires of hell, the judgment of God. It would be wrong for us to make that our major message because it's not the major message of Jesus, but it was a significant part of his message. So it would be wrong for us not to speak about these things. For us just to say, go through life, hope for the best. Jesus didn't do that. He used graphic imagery to try and awaken people's minds to the reality of this coming day of vengeance. 
this certain day. But we live in favor, the year of God's favor. And the reason why, if you're a Christian here today, you have no reason to fear God's judgment. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Which means there's no judgment for me in the future because my judgment has happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus said, I will do that in your place. And where he was punished upon the cross. So he could welcome this woman in and he could receive her worship because he knew what he was going to do for her. Why don't we stand? I'm going to invite the band to come. And I want us to sing a song in response to Jesus' faithfulness and grace. And I want to issue an invitation to us all to put our faith in him, to fall at his feet as we were singing. And as that woman fell at his feet, to see him for who he truly is, worthy of our worship, worthy of our devotion, the true king and the true God. And so, Lord Jesus, we listen to your words this morning. And we thank you for the hope we have in you. Lord, I pray for all of us here. Let us come and receive your approval and your acceptance today. Oh Lord, have mercy upon us. Have mercy on us. Thank you for being judged in our place. That the day when you return for us as your people is a glorious one. Not to be dreaded, but to be longed for. And I pray, Lord, where there are people feeling dread and fear today, would you exchange those things for faith and peace? And may we know this wonderful, wonderful intimacy with you that you invite us to have. And so, Lord, we now just respond by worshiping you together. Amen.